focused on the problem of sin, didn't give a whole lot of time to God's response, and that's what we want to do this morning. And what we want to understand is that the fulfillment of Micah chapter 4 in the person of Christ represents the great reversal, (laughs) the great reversal. So keep that phrase in mind and read with me as we look at Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples will flow to it, and many nations will come, and they will say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, And he shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations that are afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Zion from this time forth and forever. And you, O tower of the flock, Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Let's pray. Lord, encourage our hearts, we pray, by your spirit. Help us to get clear in our heads what you're doing, who you are, who we are, what's going on in this world. Help us to get clear in our heads what you've been doing across the generations and centuries and millennia. We lose sight of these things. They become fuzzy. Lord, clarify them for us this morning. As we come to your table, prepare us to celebrate at the table of the Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. may be seated. It's hard uh, to believe... But three weeks from today is the first Sunday in Advent. Three weeks from today, November 30th, first Sunday in Advent. And that, of course, means that the trees are going to go up and the lights are going to come out and the neighborhoods will look different, the houses will look different, both inside and out. And I, you know, this always takes me by surprise. I grew up in the Midwest, and, and you're, you're prepared for this when you grow up in the Midwest because it gets gray and the leaves fall out of the trees and it gets cold and rainy. And by this time, there's probably even been a little snow. 
It, it doesn't make sense for Advent to be approaching when the skies are blue and the temperatures are balmy and you don't have to have a coat, maybe a jacket occasionally, but a coat and boots. And, it, and I've lived in Florida for a total of 20 years, and it still takes me by surprise. But that's where we are. That's what's coming. Advent and Christmas. And I'm in the habit of this every year. Um, you've maybe gotten used to the habit. I don't know. Maybe not. But every year I always ask the question, why? Why do we do this? These lights, these trees, these decorations, the giving of gifts, why do we do this? Now, look, I, I think it's important for those of us, you know, who have who we've stepped over the line, we've, we've walked through the door, we've come to the place where we... We, we understand who we are and we understand what we need. And, and by the grace of God, we've, we've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And God's opened our hearts. And, and, and we kind of, you know, it kind of comes together and we get it. And we know that we have been saved, rescued, redeemed, delivered, forgiven, cleansed. Gee, what great stuff. So whether we're there or we're still on the other side of the door, and I'd encourage you with your friends and neighbors to think about this. Just ask yourself first and then others, why do we do this? You've got some ramp-up time here. We're three weeks away. So for the next three weeks, be thinking about this and be asking yourself and be asking other folks. I mean, why do we do this? Is it the case that the marketers... The advertisers, the retailers all got together at some point in the past and said, hey, we need a push at the end of the year. We need to make the books look good. We need, we need to sell and people need to consume. So, No, there's a reason, isn't there? There's always a reason for why we do the things we do. There's something back in the past that explains it. Stuff doesn't just fall out of the sky. Why do we do this? Well, we do it, as we look back, we do it because of something that God has done in the past that explains why it is we do what we do in the present. And that thing that God has done is initiate this great reversal, inaugurate this great reversal. And I want to think about that this morning and want to look at it. I want to look back beyond where we are and back beyond even the first Advent and Christmas to passages like this one in Malachi 4. I want to look first to the sort of distant past, and that's where we're going to spend most of the time. And then we'll look to the not-so-distant past, and then we'll take a quick look at the present. To look at Malachi 4 takes us, in the first place, back to the distant past, not only as you look at Micah, but as you look at the other minor prophets and as you look at the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, as you look past the first Advent and Christmas to the more distant past, you're looking back to passages like this one in Malachi chapter 4. And there are phrases here that are incredibly important for us. You've, you've, you've probably used them. You've, you've heard them read. And they're phrases like the phrase you find in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Micah. It shall come to pass in the latter days. It shall come to pass in the latter days. And then verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame 
the latter days or in that day, or as we'll see in Hosea chapter 3, the word afterward has the similar sort of content and conveys the same sort of imagery. So where does this language come from? The language of the latter days, that day, afterward, that is so much a part of the fabric of the prophets. Where does it come from? Well, interestingly enough, the language itself, the language of the latter days is found first in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 30 and 31. Way back in Deuteronomy. And way back in Deuteronomy, and you've got to stay with me here because we're going to look at a bunch of different passages. But way back in Deuteronomy 4, 30 and 31, this language is first used. Now remember what Deuteronomy is. Remember or know that Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero to nomos, nomo, law, second law. It's a, it's a repetition of the law. The first iteration of the law was Exodus chapter 20 through the rest of Exodus and then Leviticus and also uh, in Numbers. But when you come to Deuteronomy, you're getting it a second time. But here's the more important thing. It's not just the second law. It's a sermon. It's Moses preaching his last words to the Israelites to the nation of God, the people of God, because Moses is about to leave the scene. And he's about to pass the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And this always happens when the mantle of leadership is passed, that the people of God renew the covenant that they made with God at Sinai. That's Exodus 19. And when they renew that covenant, they read the law again. And basically Moses is preaching. You think I'm bad. Moses is basically preaching a 35-chapter sermon. Okay? That's a long one. And that's the context in which this language first appears. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 is an admonition. It's an admonition to keep God's commands, to keep God's law, to obey God's law. Why? Because... Where there is obedience, there is blessing. But where there is disobedience, there is curse. And it's in that context, again, that this passage, Deuteronomy 4, 30 to 31, is found. So look at it and and read it. When you are in distress and all these things that have happened to you, meaning the judgment and exile that would come if Israel were disobedient. Remember, we've been saying God takes righteousness seriously. He takes it seriously. He takes it seriously for a couple of reasons, a couple of big reasons. One, it's an offense against him. Unrighteousness, sin, is an offense against his holy character. He is just. He cares. But he also cares about sin and unrighteousness because sin and unrighteousness lead to death. And God's not passive as he looks at his world. He intervenes. And that's a constant theme in the Minor Prophets. He cares about sin and unrighteousness because sin and unrighteousness rob him of glory. This sounds a little like John Piper to those of you who are familiar with Piper. It's because I got it from him. It robs him of glory and it robs his people of joy. Sin kills. And God cares about that. And so where there is sin, God will deal with it. 
And where there is unrighteousness in Israel, God will come in judgment and the result will be exile. Why? So that the people will be destroyed? No. So that the people will be purged and cleansed so that they can be restored and brought back. And that's the whole kind of pattern of human history. And it's that pattern that's reflected in these two verses. Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 and 31. When you are in tribulation and distress... And all these things come upon you. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. In the latter days. When's that going to happen? Here's what Moses sees. Remember the kind of the hallway of history. Moses looking down the hallway of history under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Moses looks down that corridor and he sees what is going to happen and he warns Israel. In the case of disobedience, God will come, he will come in judgment and you will be exiled. But after those days, in the latter days, the Lord your God will come to you and you will return to him and obey his voice. That's way back in Moses' day, the latter days. Now, that phrase, the latter days, gets packed, filled with content, with images and pictures. And across the centuries, the breadth and the depth and the color and the beauty and the wonder of these latter days increases and grows. There are probably 50 passages that we could look at this morning. We're just going to look at, quickly, I hope, a few. But let me encourage you to take these as sort of keyholes through which you can look into the great program which God has for history and find the rest of the passages yourselves. And like a coloring book, you know, just color in the different colors that you derive, that you get from looking at these passages. Here's just a few of them. Look at Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 11. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great. There it is, that day, that day, those days. First introduced in Deuteronomy. That day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. That day, there it is. You see, a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. It's coming, Jeremiah is saying. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And verse 8, and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord. There it is again, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their king and the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now get this thing historically. Here is Jeremiah, centuries removed from David, and there's a reference to David, a king who's going to be raised up. And people, the people of God, will come to the Lord their God and David their king, and they will serve him 
And so verse 10, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make them afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will no, by, by no means leave you unpunished. There you hear from Deuteronomy the idea of judgment, but following judgment, there comes this restoration, this return, and listen to the language that's used. It's the language of the garden, friends. It's the language of restoration. It's the language of return. Quiet and ease where no one is afraid. Where no one's afraid. Those are some colors being added, being added to this picture of what God is going to do. Here's another one. This one is simply stunning, but it's in keeping with Micah chapter 4. You remember Micah chapter 4? As we read that, there was reference to the nations. In that day, in those days, in the latter days, nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 19. By the way, just, just for fun, and I, I really don't mean to be stepping on anybody's toes or doing anything untoward or unkind or, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm really not ethnocentric, okay? I'm really not, I used this word with my dad the other day, and he said, what the heck does that mean? I'm not a misogynist, okay? I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not one who hates women. I love women. I've lived with four of them, okay? And, and I'm not ethnocentric. I love the nations. I love the peoples of the nations. I should. Jesus does. But here's what I'd like to suggest. As you read through Isaiah 19, these verses that I want to read, if you have someone in your network of relationships who is Jewish, read this passage to them and see what kind of response you get. It's simply stunning. Isaiah 19, begin at verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. And everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts that he has purposed against them. Now, so far, so good. If you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, good. This is the day when God is going to torch the Egyptians. Finally, it's going to come. But look at what happens. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. And one of those cities will be called the city of destruction. That's a reference to Heliopolis, the city of the sun in Egypt, where the worship of the sun was institutionalized, where Egypt's paganism and unbelief and idolatry were institutionalized. You see what's being said? In that day, that day that is coming, even a city that warrants destruction, the city that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, that city will be a place where the language of heaven will be spoken and there will be the worship of the Lord God Almighty in that day. 
In that day, verse 19, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And then look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt. Get your geography straight. Eastern end of the Mediterranean, Holy Land. To the south and a little bit west is Egypt. That's Egypt. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, a highway that goes across the Holy Land to the north and the east into Assyria, which rested to the north and the east of the Holy Land, a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be... This is what I want you to read to your Jewish friends. Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, now you've got to listen, folks. You've got to try to put on the ears of somebody who is hearing Isaiah preach this, a Jewish person in Jerusalem, surrounded by Assyrian hordes, bent on the destruction of Jerusalem, In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Wow. In that day, I thought the Egyptians were going to get toasted on that day. I thought the Assyrians were going to get toasted on that day. But what you're saying, Isaiah, is... That in that day, in those days, at that time, Egypt and Assyria and Israel and the peoples of the three nations will worship together. Take some crayons. Fill in the picture. It gets more colorful, more beautiful as you read through the Old Testament. Look at Hosea. We looked at Hosea several weeks ago. Look at Hosea. Verses 3 and 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, after those days, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There it is. See, go get a concordance. I mean, this is a blast. Go get a concordance, and a good one, like Strong's or Young's, you know, or Google this thing. If you don't know how to use books, use your computer. If you don't know how to use a computer, use books. Get a concordance. And look up this phrase, in the latter days, in that day, in those days. They're all over the place. And the picture captures the language, picks up the language, broadens our understanding of it, increases the color and the beauty and the diversity of it. And here is Hosea saying the same thing that Jeremiah said before him, that Moses said before him, that Isaiah has said. There's a day coming. There are days coming And what will those days mean? Those days will mean that the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord, 
that the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Israelites will worship together, that people will come together and call upon the Lord of hosts and they will serve David the king. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all after the death of David, referring to one who is going to come and who would gather the nations to himself. That's what the Old Testament prophets, major, minor, in between, that's what they looked forward to. They looked down the corridor of history and they longed for that day. In those days, in that day, declares the Lord, I will gather, I will assemble. Now you know, I trust, that it isn't just the case that the Old Testament prophets were looking for days, for days of peace, days of tranquility, days of prosperity, days of blessedness, days of deliverance, days of restoration, days of redemption. That's the way history works, okay? From sin and judgment and exile to restoration and the promise of blessedness. But you know, that the prophets aren't just looking down the hallway of history for days. They're looking down the hallway of history for a redeemer, for a king who would come. You're going to hear this passage in just a few weeks, a couple of weeks, Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. I can't wait until Advent so we can talk about those phrases. Whose origin is of old, who is of the ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Praise God. Prophets weren't just looking down the corridor of history, the hallway of history, to see days of peace. They were looking to the Prince of Peace who would bring the days of peace. So has it happened yet? Has the Prince of Peace who comes to bring the last days The latter days, I'm setting you up. When Israelites and Egyptians and Assyrians and Africans and South Americans and even the Irish all are gathered and assemble to worship the God of heaven and earth and their one true Davidic king. Has the day come? We've looked at the distant past. Let's take one more quick look at the distant past. 
And then understand the connection between the distant past and the more recent past. Look at Malachi. Chapters 3 and 4. I'm just going to read these and then make the connection. Malachi chapter 3. See if this language doesn't sound familiar to you. And see how God so orchestrates history, so assembles his prophets in succession, that he leaves this massive opening for the fulfillment of what he is promising. The Prince of Peace who will bring peace and who will bring it to the nations so that the nations are assembled before the Lord God and the one true Davidic King. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, the one you hope for, the one you're praying for, the one you long for, the one you delight in when he comes. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. You wonder what's going on in your life right now as a Christian? You wonder why things can be so blasted, hard, painful, discouraging. Why life can feel so much like a hurricane force against your little soul. Here's why. Here's why. Because the king has come. Because the prince of peace has come. And the prince of peace who comes, comes like a refiner to purify the sons and the daughters of Levi like gold and silver, that you may offer an offering to the Lord in perfect righteousness. Does that day come? Look at Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them either root or branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And then verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that is the end of the Old Testament. That's the last word that's spoken. God is going to come like a refiner's fire and a messenger is going to come in advance. So look at the less distant past. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What Mark does actually is pick both from Micah, from Malachi, and from Isaiah and weave them together. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, the one who will announce the day of the Lord, the one who will announce the arrival of the Prince of Peace, the one who will announce the coming of the King of Kings. And he will be one like one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And that one was John the Baptist. Jesus said it later in the Gospels. Jesus said, John the Baptist is the Elijah, the one who was sent ahead of me, the one who announces my coming, the one who prepares for my arrival. And so John the baptizer comes and he prepares the way and does what he's commissioned to do. So has it come, that great day? Have the last days arrived? Have those days come? If you listen to John the Baptist, if you follow the trajectory of Old Testament history, and you listen to the New Testament picking up the language of the Old Testament, it is very clear that when Jesus arrived, the last days came with him. When the Prince of Peace came, the inauguration of those days came with him. That's why the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 1-2, a passage I've mentioned several times on Sunday evenings, for those of you who remember, and even more recently on Sunday mornings. Hebrews 1-2, in the past, in the former days, in those days, God spoke to us through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, back then, two millennia ago, when the author of Hebrews was writing the letter to the Hebrews, in these last days, he has spoken to us where, how? By his son, the Prince of Peace, the greater David, the Davidic king who assembles the nations who come before him to serve the Lord God by serving the Davidic king. Paul captures it. It's a passage again that I mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He's referring to all of the stuff that happened in the Old Testament, Moses, the Exodus, their wanderings in the wilderness, everything that is back there. Paul says these things happen to them as examples for us. And then this stunning phrase, upon whom is the fulfillment of the ages to come. Them, the Corinthians. Paul says that the fulfillment of the ages rests upon the Corinthians in these last days. Peter says the same sort of thing. So you see, here's what it is. The Old Testament prophets, looking down the hallway of history, could see something out there. God give them, gave them the ability to see something out there. But it was like telescoping. If you've ever been in the mountains in Colorado or something like that, you can't judge distances when you're at 13,000 feet. I had this opportunity several years ago. I was in a, 
was in a high elevation wilderness area. And from my campsite, I could look across at three lakes. I felt like I could reach out and touch them. It took me two hours to hike to those lakes. Distances lose all sense of perspective. So what the Old Testament prophets could see was this age and the age to come. These days and the latter days, what they couldn't see is the overlap of the two ages. And that with the coming of the Prince of Peace, the age to come, the latter days, that day is inaugurated and begun. So you ask, well, where where is judgment? You said that that day of the Lord is a day of judgment following sin that leads to deliverance and blessing. Where's the judgment? And you know the answer, don't you? There is an intrusion of that final future judgment into the present at the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and earth intrudes future judgment into the present so that by judgment, deliverance, and blessing come. And where do you see blessing? You see it in the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ, where judgment is intruded into the present, and the resurrection of Christ, where future eternal blessedness is intruded into the present. Judgment leading to deliverance and blessing. And after the ascension of Christ, he rises to the right hand of the Father and with the Father sends the spirit of blessing to rest upon the church, to dwell in the midst of the church right here and right now. In the coming of Jesus Christ, the new age, the latter days have been inaugurated And the blessing of the latter days has begun to be enjoyed by the people of God because judgment has led to deliverance and blessing for the church. And that is why we put up Christmas trees and Christmas lights. And that is why we grace one another with gifts. The great hope is that what is begun will be finished. And Christ will finish what he has started in these last days by delivering his people out of all of their bondage. He will purify them and cleanse them so that as sons and daughters of Levi, we may offer to the Lord an offering of praise and thanksgiving in perfect righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, um, sometimes our hearts grow heavy. Sometimes we grow weary. But I thank you that by your grace and mercy, by your might and power, you have conquered sin and death. You have withstood judgment to rise victorious and you have secured eternal life and blessedness for your people. As we come to this table, Lord, may our hearts Be greatly encouraged. Ready us, O Lord, we pray in your name.
I apologize for the size of the print. We'll do better next time. But let me encourage you to ready your hearts as we sing before the throne of God above.
ones in the hope of eternal life. Come to this table and feed upon Christ in your hearts by faith as you remember his death. If you've not come to the place where you have acknowledged Christ as your Savior, let me say again that taking these elements will do you no good. They can't help you. In fact, they can actually hurt you because a holy God takes holy things very seriously. So if you've not come to the place where you've, you've crossed that line, you've, you've embraced Christ, trusted Christ, called upon Christ in some form, fashion, some way to save you and deliver you, then my encouragement is that you take Christ. He is here, present by his spirit. And to cry out to him and call upon him to save you. Gives you access then to this table and its back. You know Christ, the Prince of Peace, the King of David. Come and eat and be glad. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, risen King of glory, set aside this table, set aside these elements by your spirit in common and ordinary use to this holy use, this sacred use, that we feed upon you in our hearts by faith and stir up faith in our hearts as we receive this bread and receive this cup. We might know the blessings. The Spirit born, nourished, strengthened blessings that come to us because of what you have done in the gospel. Come Lord Jesus and we with us be The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had blessed and given thanks for that bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I'm ministering in his name, give this bread to you, he said, take and eat, this is my body, broken for you, do this, remember me.
Stand together and sing the first and last verses of our concluding hymn. 